Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Good morning. Welcome to Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. My name is Josh Bertram. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Crossing Church. It's great to have you with us this morning. If you are newer to Grace Crossing Church, we'd love to know about your presence here with us today, that you've been coming and getting to know us. We'd love the chance to get to know you a little bit, and we can do that most effectively through the connection card that's in the seat pocket in front of you. If you're in a front row, it's behind you, and you can take that if you're ready and fill out some basic information there. Turn it in to either of the giving boxes, which are located on the sides as you exit the auditorium. There's another giving box over across the way, right by the Connection Center, across the way from the women's bathroom in the gallery. You can turn it there, or you can go to the Connection Center where you can meet a person who can help you. One of our team members will help you with any questions that you have. We also have ministries running right now uh, for children and infants through fifth grade. We have well-trained team members back there who are committed to making it a good experience and environment for your child. So we encourage you to check them in. If you haven't done so already, you can still do that now. We also have Intersect Student Ministry. It meets, it used to meet on Wednesday nights, and now it meets on Sunday afternoons, 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. So we will be meeting today. And there will also be an optional pool party, not part of the regular programming, but a pool party tonight at 6.30 p.m. Um, go ahead and send your student, and then we can give you more details on uh, the pool party uh, this afternoon as you come. And we really love having you here this morning, and I hope that you enjoy your time with us today. I want you guys to do a little bit of a thought experiment with me, if you can. And imagine that you're out in a valley of sorts. There's like a kind of stream or lake even. It's kind of pristine. And there's um, a sloping hill that's moving up to one side. If you're looking at it, it's on your left. And you're kind of strolling uh, on an August afternoon. It's hot. It's dry. It's very pretty, but it's hot and dry. And you smell smoke. You also notice smoke. And You see it kind of billowing up in the distance, and you decide to investigate. So you go towards the smoke just to see what's going on. And as you get closer, the smells become more intense. You recognize them as wood burning and grass burning. You also begin to hear kind of a little roar, like like a small roar that's getting bigger. And you recognize that there is a large fire, and you come come across it, And it's a forest fire. And in that forest fire, you are the only one who's noticed it. And you are supposed to begin to put it out by yourself. Now, that's not just a fun, maybe not fun, I don't know if that's the right word, thought experiment. That actually happened uh, to a park ranger who was serving at the Helena National Forest or Helena, however you say that, National Forest in, uh, in the West. And 
this particular park ranger came across this fire that day and he took immediate action. He went back to his station. He called for help. And the reinforcements that he got were a group of people, 14 in all, smoke jumpers. Now, if you're not familiar with the term, a smoke jumper is someone who would go into a plane, a firefighter, and jump out of a plane and parachute close to where the forest fire had started to try to put it out. And there's 14 of them, August 5th, 1949. Plus the park ranger made 15. So 15 people trying to now put out this fire. The fire was getting bigger. The man who led this expedition was a man named Wagner Dodge. Isn't that a cool name? I wish my name was Wagner Dodge. One of the people said it sounds like a car um, sales place. Why, why am I, what is that called? A car dealership, thank you. I don't know if anyone said it, but it came to me. A car sales place. <laughs> anyway, so Wagner Dodge was the leader. There he is, Wagner in all his glory. Wagner was a man of few words. I want you guys to keep that in your mind. But he was the guy who's leading the expedition. And all of them were there. They kind of got spread out a little bit. Um, but they, can't, they were coming back together in pretty close proximity. And they were planning on how to stop this fire. Now, literally, the fire was like a few hundred yards away, this raging inferno, all right? And Wagner Dodge is there, and he's like eating breakfast, you know? Yes, he's eating Pop-Tarts or something. I don't know if they had those in 1949, but he's sitting there, he's eating his food, and all of a sudden, his mood shifts noticeably. And Wagner gets up, he looks at his crew, and he says, run! And the direction they had to run was up a, the side of a hill that was 75 percent like uh, not great but it was very very yeah, it was a very steep hill and they had to run up this hill and it was very hard to run and he says all of a sudden he's like drop your tools now for a firefighter their tools were very symbolic you know it's the thing that they had that they could use like the bible to a preacher they didn't want to drop their tools and everyone was kind of confused. They didn't know what was going on. And then within a few moments, what's called a blow up or, or blow out occurred where the fire got so hot and mixed with the wind that it literally was like an explosion in this forest fire. And it ate up and consumed 3,000 acres of land within 10 minutes. And these 15 individuals were running for their dear lives. And as they're running up the hill, they notice their companion on their right fall and get consumed by the fire. They notice another companion on the left trip and get consumed by the fire. Another companion stops because of exhaustion and gets consumed by the fire. 
And this fire is chasing him. And all of a sudden, Wagner stops and he lights the grass in front of him on fire. And he looks up at his crew, the men remaining, and say, come here, come here, come with me. But none of them do. They look at what he's doing, lighting this fire, and then jumping into it. And they say, this guy's nuts. And they keep running. Three people survived that day out of 15. And one of them was Wagner. The other two, by accident, made it into a crevice in the hill and made it to safety. Now, what Wagner was doing was he was trying to prevent the fire from having fuel. Any Boy Scouts in the room? He was trying to prevent the fire from having the necessary fuel. And when he made this large spot, he got in it and the fire flew over him. He says in his account that it literally lifted him off the ground. Like the hot air was lifting him off the ground and his clothes were singed. His eyebrows were singed. Everything was singed, but he came out unscathed. Now, When people were exploring and trying to understand what happened in this tragedy with all these young lives, every single one of them under 30, men with families and children, moms and dads, brothers and sisters, they're trying to understand what happened. There are a lot of different factors, the temperature, the dryness, the wind, all those different things. But they looked at Wagner's leadership. I remember when I said he was a man of few words. Well, his wife was interviewed, and she said this about Wagner. On the day of our marriage, he told me, you do your job, and I'll do my job, and we'll get along just fine. Needless to say, he wasn't the most romantic of individuals. And so he says this to his wife, and she falls on and says, I love the man, but I did not know him. See, in retrospect, at looking what was going on, they began to piece together people who were exploring this, that Wagner had a fatal flaw in his leadership, and his fatal flaw was that he did not communicate and get to know his men. He had not attended the training that had happened during that summer where they would get to know each other. He didn't even know all the names of the people on his crew. And when the time, the crisis came, where they needed to listen to him, the sufficient level of trust had not been established, and none of them listened to him. He was internal He would not communicate what was on his mind. He would not communicate what is thinking. And so when he, very logically and intuitively, was trying to get rid of the fuel, the other men did not understand because they never had a chance to experience him making sense before. And so he didn't make sense now. In one word, Wagner was unapproachable. You didn't know what he was thinking, and he wasn't going to tell you. Now, 
most of us, if not all of us, have not been in that kind of crisis before. But I think all of us have experienced times when we have been misunderstood or someone else has been misunderstood or we've misunderstood someone else because we have not communicated what's going on in our minds. Husbands, amen? Me, right here, all right? And we all know what it's like. When your wife is upset at you or your husband's upset at you and you're not really saying what's on your mind and you're reading their mind and they're reading your mind and none of you are actually talking about the same thing and then you have a horrible night. For all the married couples here who have gone through that, let me get an amen. Come on. Or the infamous delay in the text back. And then especially when you see that little thing that says red. You know what I mean? On your iPhone, you're like, you read that. And you're not texting me back. You hate me. You know what I mean? You hate my guts. When maybe they just forgot or, you know, put it down or whatever. And we make assumptions about stuff. And those assumptions hurt relationships. But a lot of that comes down to people in our side. When we, when we are unapproachable, when we don't communicate what's going on, it can tend to have other people, they're left to just fill in the blanks. And by nature, we don't fill in the blanks kindly. We usually think they hate our guts. Or something along those lines. You know, we can begin, if we're not careful, and I know that there is a view out there that I've heard many times, that we feel that way towards God. You know? That he's unapproachable. That he can't understand what we're going through. That there's no way to figure out what God wants. And that makes sense, you know? In a way, it makes sense because God is so vast, right? We're just these little tiny ants, you know? And God is just so far beyond that. We can't even comprehend him. So how could he understand what's going on? There's no way. He doesn't get it. And so that assumption that we make about God tends to make us put him at a distance many times. We don't want him close because we don't feel like he'll understand. And we make assumptions and we bring um, this assumption to God that he is unapproachable. Most funny is you start to look at the scriptures and you say that, you see that the Bible is a history of God trying to approach people. That God is a God who speaks No, he tells you what he's thinking. He tells his people what he's feeling. He says all these things to his people, but yet at the same time, we can sense that there is an enormous divide between ourselves and God. And the people, the Israelites, God's traditional people, they sense the same thing. And God was distant. He was there and we were here and it felt like there was this connect that just could not be bridged. But what we find in Jesus, the Jesus that disciples of Christ follow, the Jesus Christ from which we get the word Christian, when we look at Jesus, we see that Jesus made an unapproachable God approachable. That Jesus bridged this gap that no one else had been able to bridge. And I think today, as we look at this, we can learn some really 
important lessons and principles about how Jesus bridged the gap between ourselves and God. In John's gospel, one of the apostles of Jesus Christ, he wrote a story, an account, a historical account of Jesus and his interaction with him. Here's what he says. In the 14th verse, the first chapter, that the word became flesh. The word refers to Jesus. The word is the same word used at the beginning of the chapter to say that the word, when the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and that everything has been made through the word. This word is Jesus, and this word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We, the people who have wrote it and the people who experienced Christ, have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full, radiating, overflowing with grace and truth. Jesus made the unapproachable God approachable. And he did it in some amazing ways. And the first way Jesus did it is that he made, in some sense, the unknowable God knowable. Now, God, again, had always communicated what was going on in his heart and mind. And we know that we see that in the first 30 nine books of the Bible that we refer to as the Old Testament, we see that God was speaking and speaking and speaking, and we can still gain amazing lessons, and we, and we need to go back and look at that. But there's a way in which um, that there was something unknown about God and about his character that we could not have known if Jesus had not come and told us. See, Jesus is unique. Again, if we look at the same verse, 114, in a different translation, the New Living Translation, we see that um, he says, we have seen his glory. That's Jesus, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. This word means that Jesus was unique, that he was one of a kind in a category of his own. And this one of a kind Son had one-of-a-kind access and one-of-a-kind information to the Father that nobody else had or has without him. Further on in the chapter, in verse 18, here's what the author says. He says, No one has ever seen God but who? The one and only Son, who himself is God, and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. That means that Jesus is the one through whom we gain the full understanding of who God is and his character. That God is relational. Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are in relationship with each other and who desire relationship with us. If you look back to verses 11 through 13, we say that Jesus came to that which was his own, but they did not receive him. Yet all who did receive him to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Jesus came as the one-of-a-kind son of God with a one-of-a-kind information and access to the Father, and he had a unique and one-of-a-kind mission from God. And that mission 
was to reveal God's grace and his truth. His mission was to show us what God is like. The character of God, the very heart of God. See, Jesus took a concept that people struggled with because people often kept God at a distance. They often worshiped God incorrectly, just as we do today. And what Jesus came is he gave, took away the myths, expelled the inconsistencies, and he said, here's what God is really like. He is full of grace and truth. Now, the, I like the translation in the New Living Translation. It says that he is filled, right, that Jesus Christ came full of unbelievable and unfailing love and faithfulness. Grace is this unfailing love. My son Malachi is a rocket, to say the least. From the time he gets up, to the time he goes to bed, we say he has three speeds, fast, faster, and crashed. Because as soon as he hits that pillow, he's snoring. But as soon as he gets up, it's like a pinball, you know? And we have a chart for Malachi. And this chart, if he ends up on the green, he gets ice cream and octonauts. All right? Wouldn't we all like that? Let's be honest. If he ends up on the purple, let's just say that's bad. No ice cream, no octonauts, time out. Okay. Now, here's what grace is. Here's what unfailing love is. As his father, when Malachi is on the purple, grace means I say, Malachi, I'm not going to punish you, put you in time out. Not only that, but I'm going to give you octonauts and ice cream. Because grace is not just you're forgiven, but you're forgiven plus accepted plus you get favor. You get blessed. See, God's heart is not to give us what we deserve, but to give us out of the fullness of his love. And then the truth part of it is that Malachi, you were still in the purple and you don't deserve octonauts and ice cream. And that part hurts because we don't like not meeting expectations and we don't like the fact that we're not perfect and we don't like that everything doesn't go great and that we aren't right in every single moment and every thought that we have. We don't like the fact that we're imperfect and broken and that we experience the pain that we do. And yet that's life. And so we are fully accepted, loved, not only forgiven, but blessed by God. And yet at the same time, we are imperfect and broken. And that's the truth about us. And God can be trusted. He is faithful. He is dependable. His word is true. The things that he talks about are the correct interpretation. And they're not an interpretation when they come from God. They're just the reality. They're the correct understanding of life. Jesus came full of grace and he came full of truth. And one of my questions today is that Jesus has made God approachable through making him known. 
is are we going to the right source to get our facts? Because to know who God really is and what God really wants and the character of God, we won't find it in the philosophy department at the local university. I'm not saying we won't find any truth there. I'm saying we won't find the full revelation of who God is and his character. We're not going to find it in the pages of the Wall Street Journal or the Harvard Business Review. We're not going to find it in the policies of a politician. Hello? We're not going to find the truth about who God really is from any other source except his one and only unique son, Jesus Christ, who is filled with grace and truth and had a unique mission from God. But you know what's even cooler is that we have a unique mission from God too. Do you know that nobody except you has the exact set of relationships and within that set of relationships, the exact amount of influence and relational capital and energy that you have between the people you interact with? I'm not saying there's not overlap. Your son is your wife's son too, your your, uh, husband's son too. You know, we might have multiple brothers or whatever, but we are the only one who have our relationship with those people. No one else has my relationship with my wife, thank God, or her relationship with me. And none of my other brothers have my relationship with my dad or my relationship with my mom or my relationship with each one of them. And you have a unique set of friends and influences and relationships that God has gifted you with and you alone have that unique set, that unique combination. Not only that, you alone have that unique combination plus your experiences, plus your desires, your wants, everything that you have in your heart, your career choice, the places that you live, the things you've seen, the things you've done, the things you wish you hadn't done. Nobody has those but you. And there is overlap. We have common experience, but you have a unique life which follows that you have a unique mission from God. He has something he wants you to do that nobody else can do for you. Teenagers, your parents cannot love God for you. That counts for us adults too. We have a unique relationship with God and there is overlap. There has to be common ground. I'm not saying that, but you have your relationship with God. It's not anybody else's. And God has given you a unique mission to each and every one of those people that you have relationship with. And what is the mission? To be a representative of his grace and his truth. That they are accepted and they are loved, and that God died for them, and that God cares about them, and that you care about them, but they still have issues. And so do we. You have the unique ability to bring God's grace and truth to the people in your life. Jesus made God approachable. But he didn't just show something that we didn't know that we know now. He also changed the way that we do two things. He changed the way 
that God approaches us and he changed the way that we can now approach God. I want to give you guys a startling contrast this morning. And in order to give you that startling contrast, I need to go back in the Bible all the way, almost to the beginning, to the book of Exodus. And in this book, we find a story about how God saved his people from slavery in Egypt. You guys remember Prince of Egypt, right? Frogs, darkness, flies, locusts, bad stuff, right? God brings his judgment down upon an evil empire, sets his people free, and they go to the place right after they've come out of captivity, and they're at the foot of the mountain, and here's what we read happens. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Just wait on that for a second. They were scared for their lives. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. I love this imagery. It's crazy. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke built up from it like smoke from a, firm, from a furnace. And the mountain, the whole mountain trembled violently. It was an earthquake. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, I imagine it began to pierce their ears. Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. You know, we often say things. I've done it many times. Why can't God just show up in my life? Why can't he just show me a sign? And what we really are saying is, why can't God do what I want him to do to show me that he cares in the way that I would like to see that? Because I don't think that we mean this. I have been in a thunderstorm outside. And not just a thunderstorm, but a lightning storm. And I remember when I saw the lightning that was between, like probably the distance over to the doors and, and at the front of the building. Maybe even closer. And I remember the sound of the strike. Instantaneous with the light, my ears popped. They hurt. My whole body shook. The house that I was next to shook. I involuntarily jumped about five feet in the air. I was white as a ghost. I'm already white, I know, but I was even whiter as a ghost. Pale, without color. 
My heart felt like it was going to beat out of my chest. I saw the fire shoot from the side. I saw the ground shake. I felt the entire thing reverberate through my, through my lung and my rib cage, and I was scared to death. And what God did on that day at Mount Sinai was thousands of times more than that single lightning strike that I witnessed. You know, if we came to a prayer meeting and the glory of God showed up and people got fried because they're in the presence of a holy God, the prayer meetings wouldn't be very popular. And that's exactly what happened, guys. The Israelites wanted to keep their distance. If you read later, they say, Moses, you go talk to God. We don't want to. Let's keep our distance. That's cool. He can provide for us. He can kill the Egyptians. He he can do all the things that make us, you know, give us a good place in this world. But no, I don't want his presence near me. And it's understandable, isn't it? It was a terrifying and fearful experience. And then you contrast that with what Jesus did. He came as a baby. He came as a person. He changed the way that God approached us. He became flesh. He made his home among us. I love in John 1, 14, it says he became human and he made his home among us. When we kept him at a distance, Jesus bridged that distance. He came not in thunder and lightning and in fire and in earthquakes. But he came as a child. He came in humility. In a word, he became approachable. See, before we couldn't really be in God's presence. Because if we were in God's presence, we'd be fried because we're sinful. So what did God do? He became human. We couldn't be with him, so he came to be with us in a way that we could understand and touch and feel and see and make sense of. Jesus made the unapproachable God unbelievably approachable we can actually talk to God now at any time. We don't have to go through a dozen bathing rituals, sacrifice a few bulls, spend thousands upon thousands of dollars just to be able to spend a moment in his presence. We can now have full, unadulterated access to the very throne of God. Because Jesus changed the way that God approached us. 
He changed everything. There's this beautiful image of the tabernacle. It's the place where God dwelled with his people. Nobody wanted to be near it, but God came and dwelled there. In Exodus 40, it says that the cloud covered the tent of meeting that's within the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But Moses couldn't enter it. Remember, we can't be there because the glory was there. God's display, his demonstration, his manifestation was there. But if you look at John 1.14 in the Greek and start to understand what it means, it's amazing. I love the amp- way the amplified version comes out with it. It says the word defines as Christ became flesh, human, incarnate, means took on flesh. And what's the word? Tabernacled. That's the word in Greek. He tabernacled. He became God's presence among us as a baby. And we see his glory. My daughter's going to come up this morning. You feel awkward yet, babe? And the reason I'm bringing up her, her, her up here is because she's cute. And I want to show her off. Hi, sweetie. But I also want you to remember this image. The next time you feel like God doesn't care, the next time you feel like there's no way he can understand, the next time you feel like God doesn't, he doesn't care about the circumstances of my life. He doesn't know about them. He doesn't want to know about them. I'm not important to him. He's distant over there. He wants nothing to do with me. And we all come there. We all get to that point. The next time you feel like you have failed and God is nowhere to be found. He doesn't want you. He's thrown you out or anything that comes, the emotions associated with that. I want you to remember the cloud filled with lightning and thunder and fire and earthquake and then the baby. I can approach my daughter. I want to approach my daughter. And I can do that because she's like me. She's a person. And I love her. And I want to know her more. And I'm not afraid of her. And I don't have to be afraid of her. And no, Jesus isn't still a baby. I'm not saying that. But he wants you to remember that he approached us so that we can now approach him. We can bring him anything. We can bring him our experiences, our pains, our hurts. We can be angry with God. Do you think you would have gotten angry with God and really been honest about how you felt if when you got angry, a lightning would literally come out and destroy you in that moment? Do you think if there was any time where you began to question God in those moments and because of his holiness and because of his perfection, you would be destroyed in those moments in his presence and so God had to be distant because if he was present, it would kill us all. And now he can be not only near us and besides us, but he dwells within us. 
and we can know him and we can be intimate with him and we can have an understanding of how to love God and follow God and he cares about our lives and we can tell him how we're feeling and what we're going through and all the different emotions and things of life, then he can handle it and he wants to hear it. And you know what the beautiful thing about it is, is that after we do that, after we do that, we can then take that understanding, how God understood us, and we can give it to other people. Bye, sweetie. We can actually understand other people. We can actually make sense of what's happening in other people's lives because we can ask God to help us and give us understanding and we can pray for people and we can use our imaginations to put ourselves in their shoes. We can use our shared human experience to understand, hey, I know what it's like to lose. I know what it's like to grieve. I know what it's like to feel like everyone's against me. I know what it's like to not have the same friends I had before. I know what it's like to feel like everyone is judging me. I know what it's like to be scared. I know what it's like to be a human. We are in a culture where we are in crisis and everybody wants to be heard, but it seems like nobody wants to listen. And God, Jesus, the one who didn't have to listen, it wouldn't have mattered. Why, what did we owe him? I mean, what did he owe us, rather? We owed him everything. We, he did not owe us anything. He did not have to listen to us. But he became a human. He suffered temptation and loss and every single significant experience that makes us who we are. Jesus went through and he understands your pain and loss and happiness. He understands your joy and he understands your loss and you can go to him and you can be renewed by him and you can be saved by him and made whole by him and you can take that same understanding he gave you and give it to other people. Remember the list of people in your life that God has uniquely given to you they will not listen. They will not be affected. They will not be influenced until they are understood. And if we don't listen and we don't understand and we cast judgment or we just tell them how to live their lives, they might smile and nod, but they'll be somewhere else inside. Because when we listen, when we follow God's lead, it changes lives. So the challenge today is that God, Jesus made God approachable. Are you approaching God or are you trying to keep your distance? Do you actually want to know him or do you want to keep him over here because you're afraid? If you're afraid, you don't have to be afraid anymore. He's changed the way he approaches us. We can go to him with everything. And I mean everything. The other challenge is how are you approaching other people? Are you approachable? Does your son or daughter feel like you listen? Do your friends feel like you try to understand? Do people from other cultures and lives and races feel like you care? When we follow in God's footsteps, we become approachable. 
We use our imagination, our understanding. We pray, uses empowerment to understand other people. And they're affected by it. Understanding is an agreement. Jesus didn't agree with us. He became us so that we could be changed. Jesus made the unapproachable God approachable. And I hope we'll take that lesson to heart and let it change the way we interact with the people who's given us. Father, we thank you so much for this time that you've given us. We thank you for your love and your grace and that you didn't leave us alone, but that you took your time and at great cost entered into our world. God, I pray that we would take your cue that the people we have in our lives, the people we don't understand, the people we have most conflict with or feel like, man, I just could never get them, God, that we would pray, that we would ask for you to help us and that we would put on in our hearts an attitude of seeking to understand, of seeking to know and to listen. We ask that you would give us that grace that we would help us to approach you with all the things going on in our hearts. And we thank you for everything you've done. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www gracecrossingchurch.net We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.